Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Center for Christian Music Studies at Baylor University. This podcast was recorded at the 2010 Alleluia Conference. In this session entitled, The Organist of the 21st Century, The Calling, Michael Burkhardt focuses on the call and various roles of the organist, namely, theologian, herald of the gospel, educator, and leader of the assembly's song. To learn more about the Alleluia Conference, visit us online at www.baylor.edu slash alleluia. I think it's important that we as organists think about why we're doing what we're doing and perhaps how do we meet that calling um, and exactly what is that calling. And as I was just mentioning, I think part of the session has been prompted by my own journey, but also the journeys of people around, around me. And um, so there, there are probably a couple questions I'm going to ask you that for this session. I didn't prepare a handout because I wanted you not to be looking at anything, but rather thinking about some of the questions that we're going to be looking at. And I see I'm going to be quiet until the rest of our group comes in. There is no special handout for this session. Just You just need a piece of paper. Excuse us for the light. Oh, that's okay. No special handout for today, except um, if you have a piece of paper that you brought with you, that would be good. Um, there'll be a time for reflection at, at some different points. Um, but I guess what I'd like, like to talk to you about um, right now is the whole notion of calling. Whether you consider yourself to be called a minister of music, or you're called as a church musician, musician or as an organist, or a choir director, or as a Christian educator. Um, um, about 10 years ago, I really struggled with that, that whole notion because in certain churches there are hierarchies. If you're called to be the pastor, that's a more important calling than being called to be the minister of music and being called to be an educator. And it's all relative and it doesn't speak to one particular denomination um, at all. But um, reading um, a, a favorite educator of mine, Parker Palmer, I don't know how many of you know that name, taught for quite a while in um, the academic world um, in, in the university setting, but then left it because he, while he felt called to teach, it wasn't the right place, you know, medium for him to teach to. But he helped me, and I've never met him, but I feel like he helped me personally figure out this whole thing of, of calling. Because sometimes, and I, I just heard very briefly this morning, um, I changed jobs and I think it was a mistake or there was a mistake along the way. And I was thinking, well, how can, how can this calling be a mistake? And, and then he suggested that we think about calling and summons as two different entities. And that essentially, the calling God gives to us is a universal calling. It's the same as the calling to pastors. It's the same as the calling to Christian educators. It's the same as the calling to laborers or farmers or in industry persons or business people. And that calling is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And boy, does that put things in perspective when it comes to what we're doing. We're not called to be that organist, you know, who just plays the organ. It's, it's, it's under a much larger umbrella of, of being called to love God and then to love neighbor. And then there's that as yourself part in there with great implications that if we don't take care of ourselves, we cannot really adequately love our neighbors around us. And I have been taught in my upbringing that um, it was joy. Jesus first, others second, in the why, you last. And somehow I've learned in the process that that O and the why can't necessarily be in that order. And perhaps 
So I would like for us to consider the whole notion that where you're at right now is a summons where you are working. And if you are the organist, you're summoned to do play the organ at a particular church at a particular time in your life. Um, I would never have thought I would end up at the present moment where I am. Um, I, um, three years ago, decided that I would leave my college post. Um, I was director of choral activities at a Lutheran liberal arts college in Wisconsin, and I loved my work very, very much. I also um, was the organ instructor at the institution. But trying to juggle a performing career and a teaching career here in the States and abroad just was wearing me out. So I said, well, I'm going to, to leave that, and I was very comfortable with the decision, but I was moving back to California be an artist in residence out there and because I love that part of the country. And a friend of mine who's a pastor in Michigan said, would you come and do a consultation for us? Um, we've been revisioning who we are. He followed someone who was in a pastorate for 35 years. And while there were blessings of that pastorate over time, people came to do churches for one hour a week on Sunday morning, children in Sunday school, people in church, and then some occasional social activities during the week. Now this pastor is gone, my friend is the pastor there, and she says to me, um, they don't know who they are. The community doesn't even know they exist because they were this self-contained, you know, and they had a lot of people there, and but they don't know who they are. And she said, well, would you help us as part of our vision project? So I went there and they had determined that they wanted to have a ministry to children. Um, there is a, the community I work in is Livonia, and um, they were the first suburb, one of the first suburbs that people fled to in the 60s and 70s during the racial riots. And um, those lines I found out still exist in, in, in the Detroit area. But all that being said, um, that they got all excited about several programs we talked about that could happen. And um, so I, I left, and two weeks later they said, well, what would it take for you to come here? I said, I am not going east, I'm going west. <laughs> and I had that picture in my mind, but the, I, I truly believe it was the Holy Spirit thing that kept nudging me to go this other way. And my work now is to mentor the musicians of this church and to, to um, form a fine arts If you would ask me when I went to college what I thought I was going to do, or you know, when I was setting on my journey, I would say, no way, but I wouldn't have said I would have never been a composer or a performer. I had trained to be a music teacher, <laughs> um, specifically K-12 choral. While I've taught K-8 regularly, I have never taught high school <laughs> music. And um, so I think our paths, you know, change when I'm thinking, well, in terms of calling, well, was I called to this and no longer called to that? But if I think of it in terms of summons, it makes all the difference in the world. So I'm here in Detroit, and we've spent a year developing, uh, well, a year and a half, um, a, a fine arts program for the immediate neighborhood. And our first year, we started with a camp. We had 50-some children be part of that. And then 25 of them stayed during the year to come every week. And now we're on our second time. Next year, we start another site for a camp and a weekend program. But now my responsibilities have changed as a church from being a mentor to the musicians to being the director of Christian education. And it's like, oh, what an evolving process. And I'm intrigued by it because it's the best thing I can do to help my children in the worship and fine arts program. So, but I would not have expected to go that direction. And perhaps you haven't expected to go in a certain direction or to a certain place along the way where you think, oh, I made this humongous mistake, like I should have stayed there. But I think sometimes we don't know the reasons why we're in a particular place at a particular time. And so I'd like to give you um, two questions that you might um, ask yourself. And sometimes it might help us to um, write down just some thoughts along the way. The first question is this, how does who I am influence what I do? Uh, how does who you 
take a, a step back from what we do in that sense, we might be able to better look at the people whom we serve. I know that maybe this age, that brings us a certain amount of wisdom, but that first job I had, I was gonna set the world on fire, and I didn't know, I didn't know the people I was even serving. I was just going in there to set the world on fire in, in that church program. And thank goodness for people who befriended me along the way and said, um, love this, but uh, maybe we can get there a little bit slower, or you might find another path along the way in which to guide us. But the lesson that was there was, you need to know us. We're human beings, and so are you. And when we remember that, it changes our approach to people and what we do. It said, while I espouse to this, I may not be able to get there right away. And while I love doing this, the most important thing I can do is be with the people and to know who they are so that I can minister to them through the gift of song, whether that be under my fingertips or through my voice, whatever. But it also then invites me to say, how are they in turn responding and what gifts do they have? And do I value their gifts as much as the gifts I perceive God has share with them. We're so concerned about our gifts, you know, we want to do what God would have us do with those gifts, but you think about the gifts that your, your choir members bring or that your congregation brings with them, and do we take time to acknowledge those gifts, and do we recognize them, do we affirm them, and do we, do we really say, we need all of these gifts to come together, my gifts are no better than yours, they're just but it's that community of gifts coming together that makes us who we are. And maybe that relates to that second question, how does what I do shape who I am? The people around us are constantly shaping us, whether we know it or not. And their gifts that they bring to the table with them are um, also shaping us. Um, I'm, I'm going to pause to share a story. And this story is, is it's from a children's illustrated book, and it's called The Cats. Midsummer Jamboree. When I left California after teaching um, in a parochial school and at a Lutheran college for 10 years, my preschool children gave me this incredible gift of the book called The Cat's Midsummer Jamboree. And the teacher there said, this is who we think you are, and this is really who we think um, church musicians are. I thought, wow, that's rather for three to five-year-olds and their teacher <laughs> to have figured all of this out. But the story goes something like this. There once was a cat who loved to sing, to roam and sing, to romp and sing, to dance and sing. One day, the cat happened upon a toad playing a harmonica, and the cat said to the toad, your song is so beautiful. Um, I, would you join me? And it would be great um, for us to go on the road. A duet is worth traveling. The toad thought for a minute, and certainly enough, the toad joined the cat. And off they went, and they happened upon a, a skunk playing the violin. When the skunk was asked, the skunk says, well, you mustn't play too fast or too slow. And if you can meet those conditions, I will join you. So sure enough, the skunk went with them, and they had this merry trio on their way. And then they happened upon a fox tooting her flute. And then they happened upon a badger banging his drum, but they almost didn't notice him because he was kind of hidden off on the side. And here's this badger, and he said, well, you know, I could take the lead for this and feed the beat for you. So he's off leading the band. That all started first with that cat. Then they happened upon a goose playing the bassoon, and the goose says, well, I need no further invitation. Six, well, he's the sixth person to be asked. Six is my lucky number, I'll join. Then they come upon a raccoon up in a tree playing that wonderful, mostly related instrument to the organ and accordion. <laughs> and the raccoon counters the invitation and says, well, instead of me going with you, why don't you all come up here in the tree? That way people from all over will be able to hear our song. And sure enough, as the raccoon predicted, people came from far and wide to dance and sing, to romp and sing, to 
guess what? We have all of those creatures that the cat embarked upon. <laughs> you have that skunk playing the violin in your choir or in your congregation who says, if, if I'm going to participate, it has to be done my way. I know you, maybe your church doesn't have any of those. I have a couple of those. <laughs> or, or the person who is kind of in the background who surprises you by taking your lead as in the case of the badger playing the green drum. Or you think you have this great idea and that spurs an even greater idea as in the case of the rat cleanup in the street by the accordion. So it speaks to us in that um, perhaps the, what, what, what we do is more caught than thought because the cat didn't teach any of them to sing along the way or to play their instruments. The cat simply affirmed their gift and invited them into the fold of praise, which do we, in, in, like, in like turn, invite and affirm the gift and invite people into the fold with us? Do we let our love for the Lord and um, our passion for the gift of music and words be contagious rather than something that we force on people. Um, this whole notion, you know when it's working, because you can just feel that spirit <laughs> kind of going through the air. You can't always, always predict it along the way, but it keeps us mindful. And if indeed we have that badger and that skunk and that flute and the goose and the rectors and all those other creatures in our churches, in our choirs, how are we working with them so that they can catch the spirit um, of both the word and the word combined with music? Do we recognize that we all are a certain kind of learner along the way or participant? Um, um, being primarily an educator, you know, we, we've said for years there are probably three primary ways in which people learn. They learn through their eyes or through a visual way. They learn through their ears or through an oral tradition. Or they learn through a kinesthetic way of the entire body experience. Um, as people get to know me, they have no question which way I like to learn. It, it would be in the kinesthetic realm, the whole, whole body experience. Um, but I know that there are those other kinds of learners and people who participate on Sunday mornings in church in the other way. But guess what? The way I facilitate most comfortably is the way I like to learn. So I want everybody to get as excited about learning and the total body experience as I do. Irrealistic. And so the reminder for me is, while that may be true for me, I have to make every attempt in whatever I share with my people to do something in a visual way, something through the oral tradition, and something through and maybe by doing it three different ways, it'll get in. But we sometimes forget that, and it just—it's not because we're trying to be malicious. It's just part, of, you know, of our human, of our human fabric. So when I'm writing a lesson plan for my children's choirs, or even preparing something as I'm traveling, it says at the top V A K, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic, and I must put a check mark by each one of those to say that I have hit those mediums during um, the choir rehearsal or in a worship experience. And uh, all of a sudden, it strengthens things in a way in which maybe my primary mode of learning or participation cannot. And, and sometimes we don't see the benefit of that immediately. Maybe it has to be over a period of time. Um, for example, if you're working with children along the way, um, when I was teaching in the parochial three integrated choir program of about 300 children, and you know, I had this one fourth grade, I had them since kindergarten. Well, you would expect by fourth grade we should be matching kits. You know, I'd done everything under the sun, divided all the right experiences according to the book. Well, it just wasn't his time. I, I came to believe that as well. But then one day in, in, in one of our fourth grade um, choir sessions, um, he started matching kits. There was no account, we didn't do anything different, but it was his time. But the incredible thing was the entire class broke into applause. 
Mm -hmm. They were so certain. And from that day on, he never did stop gnashing his head. Now, who could have predicted? So maybe the other side of the coin is we know we want to provide experiences visually, auditorily, and kinesthetically, but everybody has their time. It's not included. And it's like even with, with faith, we want them to have faith <laughs> right away. And you know, depending upon their background and their history, that may not be, they may come to it in a different way as God is leading them. Or we want them to learn this particular hymn or love it the first time we do it. I have to say, in my own life, there are certain pieces I thought, there's no way I'm going to learn this or I don't want to learn it. And then it was through repeated exposure to something that said, oh, this is really cool. I need to learn it. But if I would have gone with my initial impression and just stopped, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So the lesson for us is to stay in the process of things along the way. We tend to live in a product-oriented society where the product is the goal, but not how we get there. And guess what? That is just totally the opposite of what, what God calls us to do, I believe. God calls us to be in process. God calls us to the journey because it's through the journey that we grow and come into closer relationship with God. Um, somebody once said, oh, it was Weston Noble, we were talking about names, he said, you know, if we didn't have those times of crises in our life, we probably wouldn't grow nearly as much as we do. It's when we're comfortable, we become kind of complacent. And maybe that's sometimes the reason we need to change jobs. Or maybe it's the reason we need to rethink about what our summons is. I was just delighted one of my first visits from the Concordia College in Irvine in California is here for the conference. I haven't seen him in about five years. And so we went out for dinner last night, and he said, I'm so glad you're here. I got to talk to you. When's it time to leave the church? <laughs> You're like, oh, well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> but we just talked about it in general terms. Have you, are you still growing? Do you feel like there's more that you need to do there? Or do you feel like you need to be moved on to be challenged? Are you, do you find yourself repeating the same thing over and over? Because sometimes that comfortability, breeding complacency, oh, I can just do this. I've done it before, they like it. You know, we'll repeat that along the way. So, and I think maybe those questions are not just for him, but they're for us as well. Whether we leave a particular place and move on to something else is immaterial. Maybe they're the regular questions we ask ourselves along the way. Um, okay, so uh, then I, I, as, I, as I was reading, I just found some, I think, wonderful stories that I'd like to share with you because I think. You know, Jesus' best mode of teaching us is through parables <laughs> or stories. And maybe we can philosophize all we want about things, but maybe um, other people's um, writings, poems, or stories will help us in our journey. Um, a man named William Stafford um, wrote a poem called Ask Me. And, and I think it, it really asks the question of us, is, are we following God's calling or summons in our life. And this is what, um, what he writes in his poem. When the river is ice, ask me mistakes I've made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others come in that blow away into my thoughts, some have tried to help or hurt. Ask me what differences they from love or hate. The concern is whether the life I'm living is the same as life that once appeared in me. Kind of, you know, rather poignant, you know, ice can't get much more <laughs> frozen than that. Um, but say, you know, would it be experience of going my whole life and not have done what was begging to be done inside in that time? Um, so I'm not suggesting that any of us are at that point, but Uh, Latin word, the word vocation.
but it makes total sense along the way if we're thinking about that life inside, are we actually living that basic invocation, giving voice to that life that is right here. And maybe that invites us into a whole nother way to think about calling loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. To be true to that calling, it asks us to be vulnerable with one another. And it means this rocks. And it's really easy to have that, not intentionally, but it just happens, particularly in our practical life. For example, my first years of teaching in both general music and choir, I loved my piano because it was my security blanket. I'd always stand to teach behind it instead of company doing this kind of thing. But it was kind of a little bit of a wall, and it, 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 it kept a certain thing from happening. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, I, mean, I hardly ever use the piano to teach anymore, any instrument for that matter. But it got rid of a little bit of something that was standing between me. And I use that kind of as an analogy. We all have certain areas where we need our shield, we feel like we need our shield up and we can't totally be who we are with, with the people who are called to serve. But guess what? They will know if we're not being true to ourselves. And the people who know it best are who you hide with and they'll call you on it immediately along the way like, why are you doing this? You know, don't placate me. Be honest with me. Be who you are and then let me see that person. That might mean, in certain, if you're a conductor and as well as being an organist, that you acknowledge your mistakes, you know, in front of them. It gives them permission to be vulnerable and to make the mistakes. Because if we don't make the mistakes, we don't learn from them. Or your pastor says, "I don't ever want you to play that hymn again in church," and you say, "You know what? I really blew it yesterday. I should have prepared more. Maybe that was." Or I should have figured out a way in which I could in, have invited the congregation, you know, into it in a better fashion. But say, yeah, acknowledge that it didn't go well. And then say, could we please try it again? Because I'd like another chance to do it. Well, that might also prompt your pastor, whom you work with, <laughs> to, to look at things in a different way that he or she is doing, you know, as, as a leader in the church. It also allows us to say that we need help along the way. We need people around us. I was with a friend on Sunday, and we, we went to see, I said we went to, I went to this rock concert Sunday night, and we were on the American side of the Canadian border, and the band is playing on the other side, and you can hear it, you know, across the water. And um, for a while, we just walked the shores, and then we came upon this Episcopal church with these beautiful gardens. And, um, and we thought, oh, well, let's just sit down a while, and then before we go back to listen to the concert. And it was, it was most interesting, now I'm losing my train of thought, that we would, we would, we would be in this strange place, we, we just had met there just to, to, to get together to talk, that all of a sudden, the whole notion of how much do these people in your life <laughs> came up, and how important are they you. And this person's thought was, um, I don't want to be dependent upon anybody. So I just handle things myself. And I thought, fair enough. You know, we read so much about codependency and all that. That's all the self-help books. <laughs> They're all out there these days. Um, and I said, well, I, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's healthy to be totally dependent on other people. But I don't think acknowledging that you need other people is necessary actually I believe it's a sign of strength because if we can share with them who we are and learn from them, we can grow. But if we feel like we always have to have the answers for our profession or for the people with whom we work, we limit the possibilities along the way. So if someone, you know, if you're working in your church and say, why are we doing this? Or how can I do this better? Maybe you don't have an answer right away. And maybe you can say that, you know, I need to think about that. Thank you for asking the question. Because it allows you to, to reevaluate what's going on. Or you, you, you might say, I need your input on this. I need your help. Not because I can't do it, but because I want it to be better. 
I want all of us to be into it. Again, that, that, that letting go of what we think we need to be, you know, in terms of the group, you know, we have to be the leader, and leaders always possess those qualities, you know, or we think they possess those qualities of independence. Um, so just some other things to think about. Um, and maybe the last thing about this whole thing, and then I'd like to share, um, how many of you read The Little Prince? <laughs> and one of the famous lines in that book is, what is essential is not visible to the eye. And um, I think I'll conclude our time with, with some words about that. But maybe um, just, just one more thing about vocation, um, that um, two things. One of them comes from Parker Palmer, Parker Palmer says that vocation is something I can't not do. <laughs> that double negative in it. Isn't that the truth? And you know what? We don't necessarily understand why that is true, but it's just there. It's just there. And um, he also says that vocation is the voice from within calling you to be the person that you're born to be. And, and I think that's really important. We read a lot these days. Um, but a lot of a lot of churches are talking about reformation of the heart, and they said reformation of the church community. And I'm wondering if reformation is the right word. I'm thinking maybe the right word might be, or another word might be, restored, rather than always reforming. That we are restored to what we were originally created to be. It's a very different concept that we have to, you know, that you were this. God created you to be, and now somehow in your journey we depart from that, and we want to be restored to that rather than be reformed. So I don't know, that's just a food for thought. And then Dieter, one of my favorite theologians, says, vocation for what you do is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep grief, where what you are doing is changing and important in the lives of the people with whom you are called to serve. Um, so, um, just a few thoughts, and maybe ultimately we, when we're thinking about how do we remain true to this universal calling in the summons that we have, it, it, we have to take time to take care of ourselves and understand ourselves. And I will confess that I'm not very good at it. And so my friends are very helpful <laughs> along the way. Um, are you getting any sleep this week? Or, you know, what, what are you doing? fun this week, um, because we can love something so much that it can totally envelop us along the way. So hence, I, I will read this because I don't want to, I thought I wrote it really well the first time, <laughs> I don't want to get it messed up this time, <laughs> but in The Little Prince we hear, what is essential is invisible to the eye. And first, perhaps the first thing is the whole notion of spirituality, and by this I'm not talking or by religion or anything in particular, but the whole notion, notion of being connected to God in a spiritual way. Um, one of my favorite fiction writers is Joseph Rizzoni. He's a priest. He wrote the Dracula series. I don't know how many, but anyway, um, he did the whole series. But then he wrote a book called Never Alone. And this is how he describes spirituality. Spirituality is being in touch with our inner self, who we are, what we are, how we really think and feel, and how we relate to the world around us. Most importantly of all, it is how these things connect us with God, who is the center of our lives. And, and, and the basis of that, meaning just as athletes and musicians have to train and practice to compete and perform, I think there's a, there's a call, uh, uh, an exhortation in that for us as church musicians, we need to get in shape. And that can be mean physically, but it also means spiritually. And in terms of the spiritual part, maybe some questions that you might ask. What is your spiritual nourishment for yourself? You're called um, or summoned to be a spiritual nourisher in your place. You're either playing the organ or directing the choir or, or working with instrumentals. What do you do to be nourished? Because I believe there are times when we are leading worship that because we are so busy, we miss.
what do you include things? You have your own devotional time. You have a, a worship time apart from that, which you are to facilitate. Um, you have special music for a few weeks that you take advantage of, or you have some time for personal growth. I think those happen both individually and in community. But we do need to take time to do it, otherwise our reservoir can easily become depleted along the way. Getting back to the little prince, what is essential to is invisible to the eye? Perhaps it's the whole person, and we don't always see the whole person, but I think the whole person is really what makes people unique. And it's that whole notion of recognizing the uniqueness of each human being. And as we become aware of ourselves, we can become aware, as I mentioned earlier, of the uniqueness of the people around us. Um, I did a, I was at a, um, a retreat center last week to, as an organ clinician and as a children's choir specialist. <laughs> and we were doing a piece um, on an early American hymn tune called The Name of the Tune is Complainer. <laughs> and, and I said, um, and then you could play this on a Sunday for those people who always take issue with everything you're doing. <laughs> well, that, that's just kind of an arbitrary name. And it was interesting. Everybody said, I know who this piece is for. You know, now, you know, we might all have those people that like just get under our skin, so to speak, and rub us the wrong way. And perhaps those people are there to, to say, okay, help me find out what this person's characteristic and uniqueness is. Because it's real easy to love the people who, who like us or, or like what we're doing. And it's those others who, who aren't there um, that in the same place we are, that may be more difficult. And if we remember, they have the same calling as we do, that changes everything. Um, one of my most favorite Bible passages that comes from Ephesians, did you not know that you are a work of art? And if we know that about ourselves, that person who loves us the wrong way is a work of art, too. <laughs> and how can we let the beauty of each piece of art Um, someone has suggested that we are not just um, the age of who we are, you know, in chronological years, but we're really the age of all things that have happened in our life, which is very different than a chronological age. It, 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 it suggests that we, we might be wiser than our age because of our life experience, or we might be at a different stage because we've lived in a certain part of the world. Um, but it also suggests then that what we do, what we produce, doesn't determine where we're going to stay. That we're always evolving, that we're always processing, that we're always changing. It's really nice in the world to compartmentalize everything in kind of black and white. I did this on Monday, I did this on Tuesday, you know, and, and this is what I'm going to do. And when I'm age 65, I'm going to retire and blah, 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 all along the life way. But sometimes, as we're growing and gaining confidence, that's going to change. You know, we can have maybe some of those aspirations, but it's really not about, about the general process. So maybe some questions for you to consider as you're working with people. Do you recognize the gifts that you have? And do you recognize the weaknesses? We all have them. And we don't like always to recognize those weaknesses. We like to keep those tucked away somewhere else. But when we recognize our own weaknesses, we're allowed to acknowledge the weaknesses in others, and not condemn them for the weaknesses, but try to help to strengthen the people we work with. Um, you give thanks um, for those strengths and weaknesses, and um, this is not like a redundant question, but do you give yourself permission to be you? <laughs> or when you stand up in front of your choir, or when you play the organ, do you turn into a different person, you know, the person rather than who you are. Is there a way that you can bring the two together? Um, and by the same token, do you give others the opportunity to be themselves? Um, and then, if you um, are part of this whole thinking of being in process, how do you set your goals and your standards and your priorities for the people with whom you're going to work? Because you know, there's a certain amount of, I have to have this anthem done by Sunday, or I have to 
by Sunday. But if I start on Monday and say, no, I've only got X amount of hours to get this done, I won't have the piece done. But if I allow my time on Monday to be simply a practice and part of the journey, I think I'll probably be finished. It means I don't have to get it done on Monday, <laughs> but I'm going to spread it out and give it the time that it deserves. Um, so maybe some things to think about. What is essential is the invisible to the eye, calling, motivation, and passion. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I believe we're, we're, in, we're called, we're all called with, with um, loving the Lord and our neighbors, but we're called in uh, maybe some of them in special ways to be gifted with music. And so, I, for me, and I can't tell you what it means for others, but it means that I'm going to seek to be more than a piece of notes. I'm going to seek more than just make music, however noble that is. I'm going to do more than just teach people how to sing, which is my great love to do. But it's not about that. It's really this, this passion for, for what God has called me to do universally. I think it creates a love for making music. That's very different from just making music. And a conviction for the message it carries. How often do you take time to talk about the words that your choir does sing or that the congregation sings or sing? How often do you read a hymn text in its entirety before you sit down and play it? And say, oh, I've done that one for a hundred years. And then all of a sudden, I've never heard that phrase before. Hmm. So this whole notion about conviction for the message and then ultimately, the passion of this calling in some big life within you and within the congregation or place that we serve. So maybe our questions for us today, what is our motivation for what we do? Um, do we see this as an opportunity or is it just something we have to do? Or something we cannot not do, as Edward Henry would say. And this is, I think, a really I gotta change jobs. I 
load all the tensions of the day into an imaginary rocket and blast it off into the sun. Or on a cold day, write work on a piece of paper and send it up the chain. Or blow all of the tensions of the day into a balloon and let it go. Put it down in the garbage disposal. Wash it off in the shower. Sweat it away with exercise. Put it into a boat with leaves and sail it out to sea. Dig a hole and bury it. These are all great images for us. It just says, yeah, get over it. <laughs> Tomorrow's going to be a new day along the way. Um, again, the questions are, can you let go? And do you want to let go? Or is there some reason that it makes you feel like you need it? And maybe our last thought is this. What is essential is invisible to the eye. It can't be solitude. We can't give all of what we are. We Thank you again for listening to this podcast. To learn more about the Alleluia Conference, visit us online at www.baylor.edu slash alleluia.